for now and boast in Him as we prepare to feast on His Word. Father, thank You for Your grace toward us, Your people. We're thankful that You chose us out of the world to be a particular people, a unique people, a peculiar people that belong to our God. We're thankful that the Word of the Cross, though it is foolishness to those who are perishing, the world hears the Gospel and scoffs at it. To them it is seemingly idiocracy. Yet to those who are the call, to your people, it is the power and wisdom of God. It is the various very means, Lord, by which you've drawn us to yourself, by which you've opened our blinded eyes to the glory of your Son, by which you've delivered us from the wrath to come and our own deception, and by which you've brought us into your kingdom. And we're so thankful that you have loved us with this everlasting elective love. And now it is our desire as we open the Scripture this morning, as we read, as we study, as we think, as we contemplate upon the glory of Your Word, we beg You to give us wisdom and understanding and knowledge. We beg You to help us to understand the truth. We beg for illumination that the Spirit of God would cut the light on for us, that You would open our minds to understand the Scriptures. The glory of Jesus would radiate in and our hearts would adore Him, worship Him, and that we would be transformed in such a way that it would bring honor and glory and praise to the name of our Savior. Lord, please do these things. Amen. Alright, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be yet again in 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, that's no surprise to you. You know that's what we do here. We go through the Scripture verse by verse, word by word, and we're currently in a study of John's wonderful little epistle to the believers of Asia Minor, the book we know as 1 John. And we're going to continue examining the passage we began looking at last week. That's 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 2, verse 2. 1 John 1, 5, all the way to 2, 2. And as you know, the theme of 1 John is Christian assurance. Christian assurance. In chapter 5, verse 13, John tells us why he wrote the book. He says, "...these things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. John writes to provide his readers with assurance. To provide them with assurance of their salvation. And he does this by laying out three tests over and over again. A series of tests by which we can determine if we are really in the faith. By which we can distinguish between authentic Christianity from counterfeit Christianity. So in these five chapters, John lays out three tests. The doctrinal test, the moral test, and the social test. Doctrinally, the true Christian believes the truth about Christ. Morally, the true Christian obeys the truth of God's commandments. And socially, the true Christian loves genuinely and truly from the heart. So the true Christian believes the truth, obeys the truth, and loves in truth. That's John's message in 1 John. In the first four verses, John's prologue, his introduction, he began with the doctrinal test, the Christological test. The true Christian believes the truth about Jesus, believes in His eternal deity and His historical humanity. That is to say, the true Christian believes that Jesus is fully God and fully man. All true Christians believe that. That is test number one. But in the verses that we began to study last week, all the way into chapter 2, John now transitions from doctrine to morality, from the doctrinal test 
to the moral test. Let me read the verses for you. 1 John 1, starting in verse 5. John writes, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now I told you last week there are two words here in this passage that give away its theme. Two words. The first one is fellowship, and the other word is sin. Fellowship and sin. And the word fellowship, koinonia in the Greek, it means participation, partnership, communion, sharing. It has the idea of being joined together. Being joined together. All Christians are joined together. We all share and participate in a common life, eternal life. All Christians are joined together in Christ. We're in union with God. We are in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I told you last week that Christianity is both a religion and a relationship. It's a religion and a relationship. I expose that false dichotomy that we often hear in our culture where people say things like this. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion. Well, that's not true. It's both. The answer is it's both. We read in James 1, there is a true and undefiled and pure religion. Christianity is a religion and it's the only true religion. But at the heart of it is a saving personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. A union with the triune God. <clears throat> In John 17.3, Jesus said, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. In other words, eternal life, salvation, is to know God and to know Christ. It is to be in communion with God, fellowship with God, to be in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Of course, as I pointed out last week, In Matthew 7, Jesus makes it clear that many who think they have a relationship with Christ in reality do not. That many who think they're in this fellowship are in actuality not in the fellowship. There are many who are deceived. So the question then is this. How can I know that I'm in the fellowship? How can I know that I'm truly in a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ? How can I know that I have eternal life. And there's a lot at stake in that question, isn't it? There's a lot at stake. If you're wrong on a math test, you you lose 10 points. Maybe you fail a test. If you're wrong about this, you're damned forever. This is eternity. If you don't like to gamble, you don't want to gamble here. So the question is, how do we know we're saved? Well, that brings us to the other key word in the passage, and that's the word sin. The word sin. The word sin is used eight times in this passage. 
eight times. And then another word is used an extra three times that also refers to sin. The word darkness is used twice and the word unrighteousness once. This means that the word sin is referred to some 11 times in this passage. This is about fellowship with God and about sin. So what does that tell us then? It answers the question. How can we know we're in a saving relationship with God? Here's how. Because a saving relationship with God changes a relationship to sin. A saving relationship with God changes a relationship with sin. How? How? There's three ways. In this passage, John mentions three ways that true fellowship with God alters our relationship to sin. And we have need to examine ourselves in light of these tests to be certain that we're in the faith. If your supposed relationship with God in Christ has not changed your relationship with sin in these ways, you are not a true believer. So this is very, very important. Three ways then a relationship with God changes a relationship with sin. We looked at the first of those ways last week. And the first one, just giving you one word here, if you're taking notes and wanting to write the outline, you just want one word. Holiness. Holiness. A saving relationship with God produces holiness. We saw that in verses 5-7. through Look at verse 5. John wrote, This is the message we have heard from Him and announced to you, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. So John and the other apostles, that's the we here, the apostolic we, they heard Christ, they heard a message from Christ, and now they announce it to you. That is, to John's original readers, and by way of extension, even to us this morning at Christ as King. And what's the message? Here it is. That God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. That is to say, God is holy and true, and in Him there is no sin at all. No, not none, right? A double negative. Very strong emphasis. There is no sin in God at all. He is a pure and holy being. Consequently, verse 6 says, if we say that we have fellowship with Him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if you claim to be in fellowship with a holy God while living in unholiness, you are a liar. You do not know Christ. Lying about being in the fellowship. You're lying about being a Christian. You're lying about knowing Christ. If you claim to be a Christian while living in sin and unholiness, you are a liar. You're self-deceived. A false convert. A Matthew 7 Christian. No Christian at all. Those who claim to be Christians while living in unholiness are not Christians at all. God is holy and all of those who have come into union with the Holy God are marked by holiness. That's what John says in verse 7. Look at verse 7. But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. If you're living in holiness, you're living in righteousness, you're living in truth, then you have reason to believe you're in the fellowship and you have assurance that the blood of Jesus' His Son cleanses you from all sin. So holiness then is the mark of a true believer. A saving relationship with God changes a relationship with sin by producing holiness. That's what we looked at last week. But now, there's a second way in which a saving relationship with God changes a relationship with sin. And that is confession. 
confession. Fellowship with God produces confession of sin. John emphasizes that in verses 8 through 10. Look at verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Notice that verse 8 begins with the words, if we say. If we say. This, there are three if we say statements here in 1 John 1 5 to 10. Verse 6, it's if we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And here in verse 8, it's if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. This passage exposes false professors. Those who are professors, but not possessors. Those who say they're in the faith. Those who say they're in the fellowship. Those who say that they're Christians, but in reality, they are not Christians. John is exposing false professors. The first way you can detect a false convert is by his behavior. He walks in darkness. He lives in sin. The second way to detect a false convert is here in verse eight and not verses eight through ten, and that is by his speech. He verbally denies the reality of his sin. He indulges in sin, and yet he denies his sin. He denies the reality of his sin. So John says, if we say that we have no sin, notice that's in the present tense, by the way. It's in the present tense. This is someone who currently in the present denies that he has any sin in his or her life. Someone who denies that they still sin. And this passage is so vital, so critical, so important. John's already given us a biblical view of God. right? God is light. God is holy. He's already given us a biblical view of the person of Christ. He's fully God and fully man. He's going to give us a biblical view of the work of Christ, especially when we come to chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. But here, he gives us a biblical view of sin. A biblical view of sin. Very, very rich passage. He gives us a biblical view of sin. He uses the word here, hamartia. Hamartia. It's a military term. It means to miss the mark. To miss the mark. What's the mark? What's the standard? Holiness. God's law. The law of God, right? 1 John 3, 4, John says sin is lawlessness. Sin is breaking the law of God. And the law of God, by the way, is a codified expression of His own perfect character, nature, and will. That's what the law of God is. It is a reflection of the perfect nature, character, and will of God. So sin is to deviate from, turn away from, the law of God, the ways of God, the character of God, the will of God. That is what sin is. It is to miss the mark. But sin is also the corruption of our nature. It's the corruption of our nature. In other words, our evil deeds have a source. They don't just they don't exist in a vacuum. They come from a source. The source is a corrupt nature. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is above all things deceitfully wicked. In Psalm 51.5 and 58.3, the psalmist affirms that all of us are born in sin. That that's our natural condition. Our hearts are corrupt from birth. We call this, by the way, the doctrine of original sin. Very important in biblical doctrine. Uh, it's called that because it flows from Adam's original first sin. 
Adam, we being the natural sons and daughters of Adam, we being represented by Adam in covenant before God, sinned in Him so that His sin affects us. His guilt is imputed to us, His corrupt nature is transmitted to us, so that we're all born guilty of and corrupted by sin. Sin is the corruption of our nature. And in light of that, it's breaking the law, it's the corruption of our nature inherently, John says, if you deny that you still have sin in yourself, you are deceiving yourself. You are deceiving yourself. And again, it's in the present tense. Even if someone says, I sinned before, but I no longer sin now, I've reached a higher spiritual plane, a state of spiritual perfection, they are deceiving themselves. They are liars. The word deceive, very, very interesting word. It's the Greek word planao. It's where we get our English word planet from. It means to wonder. That's what the planets do. They wander around in outer space. It means to wonder, to deviate, to, to turn away, to be led astray. If you deny the reality of your sin, you have wandered away from the path of truth unto a path of self-deception and lying. You are deceived. You've tricked yourself. You've deceived yourself. You're lying to yourself about your own spiritual nature and your own spiritual condition, but God will never be deceived. He knows the truth. And if that's you, if you deny the reality of your sin, you're not in the fellowship. You're not in the fellowship. Now you say, who in the world would deny their sin? I mean, who does that? The answer is the Gnostic heretics in Asia Minor. Right? Remember, they were a group of philosophical dualists. They had a dualistic view of the world. They divided everything up into two things. Matter and spirit. And matter is inherently evil, and spirit is good, according to this corrupted worldview. And so they taught... That when I sin, it's just my body running its natural course. It's not my spirit sinning. And so they would claim to be without sin while simultaneously indulging in sin. That is what the heretics would do. But John says they're liars. They're liars. <clears throat> you know, it is true, by the way, that we are redeemed in our inner man, right? It is true that we are delivered from the penalty and power of sin. That we're no longer under its condemnation. We're no longer under its dominating influence and power. We're not slaves to sin anymore. We no longer live in sin. However, it's also true that we still possess sin in our members. We still possess sin. According to Romans 7.14, we still exist in a body of flesh sold into bondage to sin. Paul says there is sin in me. I find this principle that evil is present in me, Paul says. According to Romans 8, verse 23, we're still awaiting the redemption of our body. So our bodies are corrupted by sin. That's true. We are redeemed in our inner man. However, when you sin, you still, in your inner man, submit to the corruption of your flesh, and therefore you are responsible. You are responsible. You cannot mitigate the responsibility of your sin. You are responsible for your own sin. So to deny the reality of sin and your responsibility in your sin is absolutely absurd. But that's exactly what the Gnostic heretics did. But there is a modern day group, by the way, that denies the reality of sin. We could call them Pelagians. Pelagians, they get their name from a heretic in the early church named Pelagius. 
And Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin. Pelagius said this, Adam's original sin does not affect us in any way. If it affects us in any way, it's not naturally or legally. It only affects us by way of example. Adam's original sin serves as a bad example, and people have been following that ever since. But we're not sinful inherently and naturally by birth. That's what the Pelagians say. We're all born in a state of innocent neutrality like Adam, and we sin by our own free will, they say. But in reality, Scripture teaches that you don't have a free will in the autonomous sense. Your will is enslaved naturally to sin. There are great treatises written on this subject throughout church history. One of them, the bondage of the will. Our will is naturally in bondage to sin. But Pelagius denied this. And this led him to affirm that Christians can attain to a state of sinless perfection. Another term for them today is sinless perfectionist. It's not a good term for them because they certainly are anything but that. They're not sinless, they're not perfect, but that's a name they go by. They claim that even they themselves, many of them will claim, that they've reached this spiritual state of perfection. That they no longer sin. But John affirms here that anyone who makes that claim is a liar and is self deceived. He says, if we say that we have no sin, present tense, we are deceiving ourselves. We're not in the faith. If that is you, and you deny the reality of your sin, you are not in the faith. So Pelagianism and sinless perfectionism are damnable heresies. You know, Scripture scripture often speaks of the universality and pervasiveness of sin that it is everywhere in every creature? Listen to what Ecclesiastes 7.20 says. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. There's not a single man on earth like that. Not one. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no man who does not sin. There's no man who does not sin. Notice he doesn't say this. He doesn't say there's no man who has not sinned, past tense. He said there's no man who does not sin, present tense. There's not a single person on earth who is that, that meets that bill. All men sin. Sin is found in the best of saints. And we know that, don't we? We've been going through the Old Testament on Wednesday night. And it's pretty clear when you read about these great heroes of the faith that they're nothing but sinners like we are. David sinning with Bathsheba. You got Abraham lying and sinning, and you got all of the saints of old sinning. If you're a sinner, you're in the same category as these people. Because that's what the best of saints do. They sin. <clears throat> so this provides then the necessary caveat to verse six. Right? Verse six. Walking in the light, not the darkness. That's the evidence you're in the faith. But John is not talking about perfection but direction. Christians are not sinless, they just sin less than they used to. And they're increasing in righteousness and decreasing in sin. That's what John is saying. But all Christians possess sin. And the Apostle Paul knew that, didn't he? We know the great Apostle Paul affirmed over and over again the reality of his own sin. And so did John. Think about John here. John uses the pronoun we, an inclusive we, Even John, even if John was to say that he had no sin present tense, 
he would be lying and deceiving himself. The great Apostle John, at the end of the first century, an old man, had been walking faithfully with the Lord for so many years, even he could not claim to be without sin unless he was deceived. And Paul knew that as well. In Romans chapter 7, we find Paul lamenting about his sin. And he says things like this, For what I'm doing I do not understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. Then he goes on and says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. And then his conclusion comes at the very end of the chapter. He says, O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? That was Paul's conclusion. Paul knew that he was not sinless. He knew that he was not perfect. He knew that he was in need of bodily redemption. And that awaits the resurrection at the coming of our Lord. In Philippians 3, Paul once again affirms his ongoing battle with sin. He writes this, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on. Did you hear what Paul said? Paul acknowledged that even he himself had not yet attained perfection. And if Paul is not perfect, if John was not perfect, do we think we're going to be any less? Do we think that we're not going to struggle with sin? That we're not going to fall into sin? That would be very foolish of us. If you claim to be without sin, you're deceiving yourself. Sinless perfection will never be attained in this life. That awaits the next life. And it will happen. But for now, we have to deal with sin. So we all have sin. None of us are without it. What's the solution then? You know, perhaps this idea of being sinless by the heretics came out of the reality that God's perfect holiness demands perfect holiness from us. And we understand that. We understand that for us to stand before a holy God on the day of judgment and not be condemned, we have to be perfect. But we also understand that the Gospel provides us with a perfection that's not our own. The perfection of Jesus is imputed to us by faith. So that we know that's God's side. That's what God does to deal with our sin. But what is our response? What is our response? How do we deal with our sin? We find that in verse 9. Look at verse 9. John writes, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, the solution is confession. Confession. You know, sinners have been denying the reality of their sin ever since the beginning. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, what did Adam and Eve do when they sinned? Pointed the finger, didn't they? They played the blame game. Shifted the blame. Adam said, It's that woman you gave me, God! We've all said that, right? Here's God. Here's Adam blaming God for his sin. And then what did Eve say? The serpent deceived me and I ate. The serpent deceived Now it's certainly true the serpent deceived Eve. But she's not blameless in the deception. It was her who refused to believe the truth of God and believe the lie of Satan instead. And therefore, like Adam, she was guilty of her own sin. But neither one of them made a profession of their guilt. They denied their own responsibility and shifted the blame. 
And that's not unlike us, is it? We see that in our culture, don't we? Today we like to blame others. You know, today it's a victim mentality. I can't help my sin. It's just the product of my environment. It's a, a product of the way I was brought up, my circumstances. It's because of my oppression. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? We like to re- redefine sin. Redefine it. Sin is a, an addiction. It demands rehab, not repentance. Sin is a psychological disorder. It demands therapy, not repentance. Sin is a sickness. It requires medicine, not spiritual renewal. And you end up with a culture of people who are overly medicated and justifying their sin because of various reasons. But that isn't going to work. That's never the solution. Your conscience will never be absolved by blaming your sin on other things. The only solution is what John says here. If we confess our sins. If we confess our sins. That word confess, homologeo, it's a rich word, compound word, two words. Hamu, same, where we get the word homo from, and lego. Literally, to say the same thing. To agree with God. To say what God says. God says I'm sinful. I say what God says. I'm sinful. God says... I'm not good. I agree with what God says. He says sex outside of marriage is sin. I agree with Him. He says abortion is murder. I agree with Him. He he says homosexuality, fornication. He says those things are sin. I agree. He says lying and gossiping are sin. I agree with what God says. Confession is to agree with God. The difference between a true Christian and a false Christian isn't one of sinlessness, but one of confession and repentance. The false believer indulges in sin, he walks in darkness, verse 6, and yet he denies his sin, verse 8. How many people do we know that do that? People that say they're homosexuals, but that's okay, God accepts them just the way they are. No, He doesn't. That's sin. And you're not going to be accepted unless you confess and forsake that sin. I can't tell you how many people we encounter at the clinic who say they're Christians and that God's okay with their abortion. God's okay with it. Abortion is not health care. It is murder and it must be confessed and forsaken. There is no forgiveness for anyone who doesn't confess and acknowledge and deal with their sin. You think of the rich young ruler in the Gospels. Jesus encounters him, confronts him with the law. He never acknowledges his sin. Jesus doesn't even give him the full presentation of the Gospel because anyone who is not willing to acknowledge their sin is not a candidate for salvation. Only those who confess and forsake their sin can be saved. And if you are not confessing your sin, you are not a believer. So that's the solution. Confession. Another word that kind of further expands on this is the word repentance. The Greek word metanoia. It means an afterthought. A change of mind. It's a change of mind about God. I now believe that God is who He says He is. It's a change of God about myself and my sin. I believe what God says about my sin. It's a change of God about a change of mind about Christ, about the Gospel, about salvation. I agree with what God says about these issues. So, there's more than just confession. Biblically, confession is only one ingredient in biblical repentance. 
there are at least four ingredients. Let me give them to you. True saving repentance entails sorrow for sin, hatred for sin, confession of sin, and turning from sin. True biblical repentance then issues an obedience and a new life. And that's what God requires. God requires genuine repentance. Any repentance that doesn't have all four of those ingredients is not true repentance. It's a repentance that needs to be repented of. It's not saving repentance. The Scripture is very clear. God requires repentance. That's the constant theme of Scripture. That repentance brings about forgiveness. Let me give you a few examples. Proverbs 28.13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. So if you conceal your sin, you hide your sin, you redefine your sin, you blame others for your sin, you're not going to prosper. That takes us back to the message Jeremy gave a few weeks ago, right? Psalm 1, the prosperous man. Prospering in a spiritual sense. If you deny your sin, you're not the prosperous man. You're going to perish. You're not going to be saved. You're going to be damned. But if you confess and forsake your sin, then you find compassion. Then you find mercy. Then you find forgiveness. Acts 3.19, Peter says the same thing. He exhorts his hearers to repent and turn back that your sins might be wiped away. You want your sins wiped away, repent, confess, and forsake your sin. The psalmist in Psalm 32.5 said this. Listen to these glorious words. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Isn't that great? That can be true for you. If you confess your sins to God, there will be forgiveness. In Psalm 51, David's prayer of confession becomes a wonderful model for us. I would recommend that you read that. He says things like this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. Notice that. He doesn't hide them. I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Psalmist is saying, look, I'm a sinner. I know it. I sinned. I deserve damnation. If you were to condemn me, you would be just. Forgive me. That is the cry of a true penitent heart. I would recommend that you turn that prayer into your own prayer often because we often have need of confession. So that's the solution. And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a good piece of good news. Glorious promise. But if that's the right response, then back in then verse 10, John goes back to the wrong response. Look at verse 10. Here's a wrong view of sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. So John now, verse 8, was in the present tense. Now he goes in verse 10 to the past tense. If we say that we have not sinned as if we have never sinned, then we make Him a liar. We make Him a liar. And consequently, 
His Word is not in us. So we go from lying ourselves to making God out to be the liar. God declares unequivocally that all have sinned. To deny that is to deny the Word of God. It is to deny the truth of God. It is to make God out to be a liar. The Scripture declares over and over again the universality of sin. Listen to how Paul speaks of human nature in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. Paul says, what then? Are we better than they? Are we Jews better than they Gentiles? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Everyone is under it. Not just that they committed sin, but that we're under sin. We are enslaved to it by nature. And it is our master, naturally. Verse 10, as it is written. Notice Paul. Paul doesn't just make claims without substantiating them. He points back to Scripture. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That's Scripture's unequivocal declaration. Everyone is naturally guilty of and condemned by sin. In Romans 3.23, Paul puts it even more plainly. He says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. To deny that is to make God out to be a liar. And since God cannot lie, the one who's really lying is the sinner. If you deny your sin, you are lying to yourself. But how could anyone ever deny the reality of sin? Remember our definition. Sin is what? Breaking God's law. Right? That's what sin is. Sin is breaking the law of God. And God requires truth in the innermost being. God demands perfection in word, thought, and deed. How could anyone know that and claim to be without sin? Surely there's no one here this morning that would claim to be without sin. But just in case, let's look at the law for a minute. Listen to commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me. And there's only one way to break that commandment. It's by breaking the second commandment. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself an idol. The only way to have a God before the God of the Bible is to make one for yourself because there is no God but one. And the essence of these two commandments is that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That we are to love God above all else. If you love anything more than God, you make that your idol. Now, who here this morning can say that they have perfectly loved God above all else for the whole duration of their life? The answer is none of us. We love many things more than God by nature. We love ourselves more than God. We love our money more than God, our pleasure more than God, entertainment more than God. And Scripture says in Revelation that anyone who is an idolater will have their part in the lake that burns with fire. That no idolater will inherit the kingdom of God. All of us are naturally idol worshippers. John Calvin said the heart is like an idol factory. It spits out idol after idol after idol. And that is our natural inclination. Listen to the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. 
Who here can say they've never falsely sworn in the name of God or flippantly sworn in the name of God or never used a name or a title for God without due respect? Who can say that? None of us. We're all blasphemers by nature. And Scripture says God will not let him go unpunished who takes his name in vain. What about the fifth commandment? Honor your father and mother. We're doing well there, aren't we, children? Honor your father and mother. Who can say they've done that? And again, he who speaks evil of father and mother shall be put to death. Who can say they've done that? None of us. None of us. All of us have lied to our parents, snuck out the I'm not going to give children ideas here. Snuck out my <laughs> fishing tonight. All of us have done that. What about the sixth commandment? You shall not murder. Jesus says if you're angry enough with your brother to say you fool, you're guilty enough to go to hell. John will later say, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. Who in here has never been angry enough in traffic to flip someone the bird, right? Yeah, no one's going to raise their hand there. What about the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. We're good there, right? Jesus says if you look at a woman and lust for her, you've already committed adultery in your heart. You're guilty. And fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. The Ninth Commandment, you shall not lie or bear false witness. The Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. Brothers and sisters, this is why we, we shake before Mount Sinai. When we look into the mirror of God's law, there is no hope for us in the law. We're all guilty and condemned naturally under the wrath of God. If I was to stop there, who could bear such a word? But there's good news. There's good news. There's a third way a relationship with God changes a relationship with sin. And that is it produces forgiveness. Fellowship with God produces forgiveness of sin. We saw that back in verse 7. Remember verse 7, John says, But if we walk in the light, as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. Wonderful. That's the basis for forgiveness. The blood of Christ. And by the way, that's a euphemism for death. There's nothing magically, there's no magical power in the literal bodily fluid of Jesus. Blood becomes a representation for death. Leviticus says the life is in what? The blood. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is not blood, death. The wages of sin is death. So the shedding of blood becomes the symbol of the pouring out of life unto death. It's the death of Christ, the substitutionary work of Christ on the cross that is the basis for our forgiveness before God. It's the blood of His Son. And notice he says, it cleanses us of all sin. Isn't that wonderful? Every sin. Not in part, but the whole. All sin. Every sin. Past, present, and future. Every sin you've ever committed Instantly wiped away by the blood of Christ, if you're a believer. That's a wonderful reality. All of it through the work of Christ. And then verse 9. Look at verse 9 again. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to do what? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wonderful. Those who confess their sin find forgiveness. And God is faithful and righteous to do this. He's just in forgiving us. He is, as he tells, as Paul told the Romans, the just justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we'll talk more about that next week. 
But what a wonderful reality. Note that this forgiveness, by the way, it's not just a one-time act. There are two aspects to this forgiveness. There's a legal aspect and a relational aspect. Legally, this depicts God as our judge. We're guilty before Him, but when we are converted, when we come to faith in Christ, the judge slams the gavel and says, innocent, not guilty, by virtue of the work of the Son of God. That's once and for all. No Christian who's truly converted ever is guilty of sin before God in a judicial sense, in a forensic and legal sense. But then there's a relational aspect of the forgiveness. This depicts God as our Father. We do sin daily, and daily we have need of confession because our sin, though it doesn't separate us from God, it does hinder our communion with God. It hinders our fellowship with God. And by confession, believers receive constant daily forgiveness and restoration in their communion with God. Jesus gave the illustration that you know once you've had a bath, you don't need to take a bath again. You walk to the neighbor's house in first century Palestine with your sandals on and in 115 degree weather, your feet get sweaty and dirty and stinky. You don't need to go take a bath again. You just need to wash your feet. So it is with salvation and forgiveness. Once you're justified by faith in Christ, you don't need to be justified again. But as you walk through the dirty world, your feet get dirty with sin and you need constant relational forgiveness through confession and renewed faith. So that's the glorious truth. The Christians receive constant forgiveness. That's why the Lord tells us in the Lord's Prayer that we're to ask for the Lord to constantly forgive us of our debts because we sin often and therefore we ought to be confessing often. But then one more time, we see this truth of forgiveness in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. John writes, My little children... I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. In other words, when believers sin, and we do, we are forgiven by the work of the Son of God on the cross. The substitutionary work of the Lord Jesus provides forgiveness for us. We're going to talk in more detail next week about the legal, salvific, uh, the kind of legal transaction that takes place through the work of Jesus Christ. We'll do that next week in verses 1 through 2 of chapter 2. But John's message here is this. God is holy. God is holy and you are not. You are unholy. You are sinful. To say you're without sin is a self-deception. So how can we be forgiven? We confess our sins... And the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, provides forgiveness and salvation for us. And you know that you're forgiven because you walk in the light, you confess your sin, and you trust in the finished work of Jesus alone. That's John's message in this passage. And in a nutshell, that's the gospel. That's the good news. So by way of conclusion, we know we're in the fellowship we know we're in a saving relationship with God because a saving relationship with God changes our relationship to sin in three ways. It produces holiness, confession, and forgiveness. Fellowship with God produces a decreasing pattern of sin, confession of sin, and forgiveness of sin. And if you're not a believer, the flip side's true. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you are not walking in the light you're walking in the darkness of sin and unrighteousness. And you're enslaved to sin. 
It's destroying your life. It's going to destroy your eternity. You're enslaved to sin. If you're not a Christian, you often don't confess your sin, but you hide it and redefine it and justify it. And if you're not a Christian, you're not forgiven of your sin, you're guilty of it, and you're condemned by it. Headed for eternal wrath in hell. So that's you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, my plea to you is that you would repent and believe upon Christ. That you would come to Him while there's still time, before the door of salvation slams in your face and you're outside saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? And He'll say, I never knew. Depart from me. Come to Christ today if you're not in Him already. And then you'll be freed from sin's dominance. You'll be freed from its deception and you'll be freed from its condemnation in Christ. Let me close by giving you four principles of application. Number one, pursue holiness. Pursue holiness. Number two, confess your sin. Confess your sin. Number three, examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Examine yourself. Are you walking in holiness and righteousness or sin and falsehood? If you're living in holiness, you have reason to believe you're a Christian. Praise God. If you're living in sin, you are not a believer. You're deceiving yourself. The truth is not in you. Are you confessing your sin or are you hiding your sin? If you're confessing your sin, you have reason to believe that the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses you of all sin. But if you hide your sin and excuse your sin and justify your sin, you're not in the faith. And are you trusting in the finished work of Christ alone, or are you trusting in yourself? If you're trusting in your own imperfect righteousness, you are not a believer. But if you're trusting in Christ alone, you can have reason to believe you are. If your conclusion this morning is that you're not in the faith, that you failed the test, please come talk with me. You can repent and believe right where you are. Call on the name of the Lord. You don't need me for that. Call upon the name of Christ. But if you need counseling, if you want help going through the Scriptures and confirming your salvation, please come talk with me. I'd be glad to give you any help that I can. But if you are convinced that you're in Christ, if you are convinced you passed the test, then praise God for the great and glorious work that He's begun in your soul and know that He who began a good work in you will bring it to perfection at the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, do you know Him? Are you in the fellowship? Do you pass the test? My hope and prayer is that each of us would be able to say yes, and through these tests, we would know that we have eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the truth of Your Word this morning. This is the message we have heard from You this morning through the Scripture. You are holy, we are not. Sin permeates every aspect of our being. None of us are without it. Yet we know that those who confess their sin and come to Christ have the blood of the Son of God applied to them, and now we are forgiven of all sin. Liberated from its power, trusting in the work of Christ, and we know that one day we'll even be liberated from the very presence of sin and will be perfected in the new heavens and the new earth. And oh Lord, how we long for that day. And even more so, perhaps in 2020 than ever. And so we pray with all the saints. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.